0: You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Amen. We're going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bible, turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. As you're turning there, the year was 1992, and a farmer in England lost his hammer. Riveting stuff, right? but it must have been a really important hammer because he was distraught about it, so much so that he asked other friends to help him find this hammer in England. And in doing so, uh, they, they broke out a metal detector. Some of you guys don't even know what that is, right? Like That was some high-quality entertainment in the 90s. But he broke out a metal detector and they began searching for this hammer. That's how important the hammer was. And upon searching for the hammer, they found something much greater. They found what's called the Hoxon Hoard. Anybody ever heard of the Hoxon Hoard? No. Okay, great. So this is going to be a Google, real popular when you go home, Hoxon Hoard. It's not spelled how you think. It's H-O-X-N-E, Hoard. But basically, they found $5 million worth of uh, coins, Roman coins, uh, from the 300 to 400 AD area. And yeah, they, they, they went looking for an old hammer and found all of these, like 15,000 different coins and Um, trinkets and bracelets and all kind of different things, worth about five million dollars. They did not know the treasure that was beneath them. That's what I want us to ponder this morning. As believers, sometimes we don't know the treasure that we have in Jesus. We don't understand the treasure that we have, that that the resurrected Christ, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit that has been promised and given to us, is living inside of us, and, and we don't no, the treasure that lies within us. So if we pick up just from last week, and in verses 3 to 14, which Tyler read this morning, Paul has described the glorious reality of what our salvation really is. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, God the Father chose us into an adoptive relationship. The Son then redeemed us and the Holy Spirit has sealed us in our salvation. And now Paul is just praying as he's been thinking about these amazing realities. It just leads him from worship to prayer. And he prays that we would know the fullness of what this blessing means. Paul wants us to know Jesus as the treasure that he truly is. So he begins, so we begin by looking at why he transitions to pray. So look at verse 15 and 16 of Ephesians chapter 1, and Paul says this, he says, This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Now again, this might seem just like a transitional type verse, not a lot to look here. We can just mention it and move on, but I want us to actually unpack a little bit that's going on here. And so the first point that I have is that as believers, we should see fruit in others even when it's not ripe. And we should be cultivators, not just consumers. This is what I'm getting at. Paul knows that the the, the, the believers in Ephesus are not fully mature and fully arrived, and yet he mentions that they have faith and love. So, what he's really doing us here is he's actually teaching us how to be good ministers ourselves, how to be good, faithful believers ourselves by cultivating in others the good fruit that we see in them. Now, it's easy to be critical of others, isn't it? Right? In fact, it's so natural, you do it without even thinking, right? I can't believe that they did that, right? I mean, you're, 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 you're even thinking it right now, right? Some of you, right? It's just easy to be critical. It's natural to be critical, but it is a grace inspired and gospel centered role of believers to be encouraging and cultivating a faith in others. So he's teaching us to see fruit in others, even when that fruit is not ripe. He says, This is why, since I heard about your faith, in the lord jesus we talked about this in the first few verses this is faith in the gospel that then leads to faithfulness it is uh, not just uh, uh, knowledge in our mind it is knowledge in our mind that then leads to repentance into action into faith in in love and so then he mentions and i've heard about your love for all the saints now it's easy to have love for some of the saints amen In fact, we we tend to build echo chambers where we just want to be around people who, uh, who talk like us, who think like us, maybe who even eat like us, right? It's easy to love people who are like us because we naturally and easily love ourselves. But again, it is supernatural love to have love for all the saints. Now, what does it look like? To love the saints. What does that actually look like? We'll look at First John, chapter three, verse sixteen. I think I have this as a slide as well. So again, the, the Bible's Bible is going to tell us what supernatural love looks like, and this is what John says to his uh, audience in First John chapter three, verse sixteen. He says, "This is how we have come to know love." In other words, how how can we even know what love is? This is how John answers. He says, "He laid down his life." For us, he meaning Jesus. He laid down his life for us. We then should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. In other words, what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection was so transformational to the New Testament church and to the believers, they had to come up with another word to describe what that love looks like. And of course, we know that love or that word as the word agape in Greek, that translates into love. But if you look into the Old Testament, it's actually not used hardly at all in the Old Testament. Why? Because they hadn't experienced a love like that. I'm entertaining in everything that I do, just by the way. So just be watching out. One day I will take a step off. and uh... So yeah, sacrificial love. That's the love of Jesus. It totally transformed the ver- their vocabulary of how to even describe what love is and of course from jesus himself in john chapter 13 verse 35 this is what he tells his disciples by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you what love one another and so i have just a working definition of what then it means to have love for the saints to love the saints means i'm fully committed to the redemptive good of others at the expense of myself. To love the saints means that I am fully committed to the redemptive good of others at the expense of myself. This is not a love that you're going to arrive overnight. Hopefully, as you read that, it's convicting that, man, I don't have that type of love. Well, guess what? Again, we're we're here to encourage you to take your next step with Jesus. And the first step would just be to confess, I need to have this type of love. Jesus, show me. You, you, you have shown me your love and what you have done by dying on the cross for my sins. Now help me show that love to others. Help me to deny myself and to see the good and to be fully committed to the good and redemptive good of others. So, this is now why Paul, that's, that's the why of Paul prays. He, he's praying because he's, he's heard of their faith, he's heard of their love, and now he wants them to know fully the gospel truths that we looked at last week of their salvation and the work that God has done through God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So now look in verses 17 to 20. This is what he actually prays. And if you're struggling this morning with, with prayer, we're actually going to have a time at the end of the service just to pray corporately together. Again, all your radars just went up, right? <gasps> we're going to pray. Oh, no, right? I'm not going to ask you to pray out loud, though. I'm just going to ask you to pray where, where you sit uh, and, to, and to pray just silently together. But just The Bible teaches us how to pray. And Paul is teaching us how to pray here. And notice, it's not like 50 chapters long, right? He's not saying, look, uh, pray means that you uh, wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and that you pray from 4 o'clock in the morning until 7 o'clock coffee. That's not what Paul's saying. But notice how he does pray. He says, I pray, in verse 17, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the glorious Father would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation... In the knowledge of Him, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the wealth of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of His strength. So what I want us to see from this passage is that that we should see the world through the gospel more than just through our own experience. In other words, the more and more you seek Jesus through his word. The more and more you give yourself and just submit to the authority of what the scriptures really are, and the more you are reading it and the more you are understanding it, the more things just become clear about what actually is going on in the, word, in the world. And what the Bible says is more authoritative than even what we experience. So my mentor gave this story of blue whales. A few years ago, uh, up until just a few years ago, we used to think that blue whales were mute. They're the biggest creature on earth, and we thought that they were mute because we didn't have the technology to actually hear the frequency in which they communicate. But once now we have discovered they are so loud and, 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 and are so powerful in how they communicate, when they communicate or make a sound, it goes up to 2,000 miles away. But again, up until recently, we thought they were mute. We didn't fully understand what was going on, right? And as we look out into the world, we don't fully understand what's going on. But the Bible does give us what true reality is. And the true reality we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is resurrected. He is ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is reigning right now, and His kingdom is in-breaking into this world through the ministry of the local church. See the world through the gospel more than just through your own experience. Growing up as a kid... Uh, in the 80s, one of my favorite movies was *Karate Kid*. Right? And what is what is the famous move in *Karate Kid*? Right? He does this little swan-looking thing. Again, I'm gonna fall off the stage. I promise you. He does this like swan-looking thing where he then like kicks or whatever, and like that's how he wins the whole tournament. You know, you get Mr. Miyagi, and what does he teach him about karate? It's wax on, wax off, paint the fence up and down, sand the floors, right? And so I'm like. I want, to be, I want to learn karate, right? And, of course, the first thing that happens when I take my first karate, lex, karate lesson at Mr. Pack's Karate in Florida was him telling me, that's not real karate, right? <laughs> that's not real karate. Real karate is really just discipline. It's just about being disciplined in order to defend yourself. In fact, karate in its nature doesn't even teach you how to attack necessarily. It's all about defense, and it's all about discipline. So, needless to say, I didn't... I didn't take karate very long, right? But what Mr. Pack did was he corrected my view of what karate is. That's what is going on here. The Bible is going to define true reality for us, which is why Paul is going to pray these specific things for us. So look at verse 17 again. He says, I pray that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, he's continuing to worship would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So he prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Wisdom is just the practical knowledge of how to live. right? You can walk through the book of Proverbs, and that's all Solomon is doing. He's reflecting on the scripture, he's reflecting on his life, and on his son. And he's trying to tell his son, this is what scripture says about life. How to live in life. That's what wisdom is. Revelation, though, is insight into God's purposes And his plans. The Bible is God's revelation to us. He has told us what the plan of God is, right? We see it from Genesis to Revelation. His plan is to have a holy people on this earth in which he dwells in the midst of them. That's the summation of the Bible, and he does that through the means of the grace of his son, Jesus. And so when Paul is saying... um, I pray that the Spirit of the Lord, Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He's connecting back to the Old Testament, to Isaiah chapter 11, in which when Isaiah is looking forward to the new covenant and to when the Messiah would come, this is what he says about him. He says the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, Isaiah 11:2. 2, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And of course, when Jesus is being baptized in the New Testament, what do the authors say in the New Testament? That the spirit, like a dove, fell upon him and empowered him in his ministry. And it was this spirit to know God, to have wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, and to know the fear of God. And so now that same spirit is the spirit that resides within believers. And Paul wants us to know that. The same spirit that rested on Jesus is the spirit within you. So Paul prays that we would have that spirit of wisdom so that we would know God as he truly is. Because the greater and bigger that God is, the smaller and more humble we will be, but then also the more we will love him and fear him and follow him and obey him. If he's just a, a pocket God, right? If he's just big enough to fit in my pocket and, and I pull him out when I need him and when I don't need him, I just put him away, I won't fear him, nor will I obey him. Paul prays that we may enjoy the fullest extent of these blessings that we already have in Jesus. And it begins by knowing God. Again, our hearts were, were darkened to the truths about, the, about God and, and, and his ways and his plan in the universe. But now that we have been saved, we've come to know who God is and to know what salvation and sanctification, and ultimately our glorification will be in Jesus. So when we think about just knowing who God is, that's what Jesus says is the means for eternal life. In John chapter 17, verse 3, he says this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. We may think that we already know God, just like I thought I already knew karate, uh, karate, right? I mean, I knew the stand, I could kick, I could wax on, wax off. I knew all that, right? We may think that we know God. But the means in which we truly know God is through his word. In fact, one of my favorite psalms and I love the Psalms, is Psalm 19. And Psalm 19 begins by basically just declaring that God has created all things and that we know that there is a God through creation, but we know his name only through the Bible. And by revealing that we know his name, what that means that we know his character. We know, we know who he is and his essence and being only through the word of God. Creation is telling us that there is a God, but only the Bible tells us what his name is and how he loves us and how he created us for his good pleasure. So we come to know God through his word and through knowing God, we obey what he says. Now, you, you can't do this without faith. In fact, uh, the theologian Charles Spurgeon, the, the great Baptist preacher, once said, it's easier to teach a tiger to be a vegetarian than an unregenerate person to obey God and to believe the gospel. It's easier to teach a tiger to be a vegetarian. Can you imagine trying to do that? Trying to hand the tiger when he wants meat some portobello mushrooms. Here you go. This is like steak, right? Uh, Or to hand him some peppers or uh, tomatoes or carrots instead of raw USDA beef, right? It would be kind of silly, wouldn't it? But yet the same thing is true about expecting unbelievers to believe the gospel. So that's why we pray then for a spirit of wisdom. We pray for the spirit to reveal to us the greatness of who Jesus is. And that's why we then plead to him to save sinners because we know without Jesus working in people and the spirit moving and the gospel being preached, no one can be saved. Look at verses 18 to 20. He goes on. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know, and he he mentions three things, what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to his mighty working and strength. So Paul then prays that his readers' hearts would be enlightened, and the heart really represents the the center of one's being. It's where your desires actually lie, where, where you plan your future, where you orient your life. That's how the Bible actually describes your heart. It's not just that um, muscle in your heart that's pumping right now, pushing blood in and out of your body, or in and out of your veins, however that goes. So Paul prays that we would be enlightened then to these three, these three things, because whatever our heart treasures the most, is what's going to drive our words, our thoughts, our actions, and our loves. Whatever your heart treasures the most is going to be driving you. So Paul prays that your heart would then have these three things, that it would know the hope of your calling. So again, without the gospel, we have no hope. In fact, next week what we'll look at is that you were literally dead in your sins without hope. But God, who is rich in his mercy... Sin Jesus, without the gospel, we have no hope. Now we use hope in our culture kind of in a different way, right? Like we say hope in our culture about things that we don't know that will happen, right? Like uh, the Florida Gators just won the SEC um, baseball uh, championship for the season, right? And so I hope that they win in the SEC tournament, go to Omaha, and that we can go watch them play in the College World Series. I hope, I don't know if that will happen, right? But that's how we use the word hope, right? Some of you hope that I will end soon so that you can get to lunch, right? Some of you hope, right, that, and again, it's things that you don't know will happen, but that's not how the Bible uses hope. In fact, the Bible uses hope for things that are certain. Isn't that amazing? The Bible uses hope for things that are certain. When he says, know the hope of your calling, it's not something that's uncertain. It's something that is certain. In fact, Peter describes this as the living hope that we have in Jesus. So hope is used in the Bible for that which is certain and that which is grounded in the finished work of Christ. Jesus has called us from something to himself, to something, and then for something. And we're going to look at that again next week. He called us to Christ and to holiness. He called us to freedom and to peace. He also called us to suffering and to glory. But more simply, it was a call altogether to a new life in which now we know, love, and obey Jesus, that we enjoy fellowship with him, that we enjoy fellowship with other believers, that we look beyond our present suffering to the glory which will one day be revealed to us in Jesus. This is the hope to which he has called you. And Paul prays that our eyes would be open to it, you know. When uh, when DVR came out and when you were able to record sports games and everything or, or anything on TV, right? You know, sometimes you'd want to watch a sports game, and you'd like, you know, it'd be going on. You'd be telling people, "Don't, don't tell me what's going on. Don't tell me what's going on." Well, inevitably, people would tell you what's going on, right? Well, still, going back and watching the game is is hard for me, right? Because as I'm watching the game, I want to be part of the game, right? I want to know what's going to happen. In fact, even when I go back and watch old championship games, now they're old now, right? Uh, Jason can watch new championship games, right? They're just a few years old. But I have to watch old championship games. Even watching them, I know what's going to happen at the end, but when I see a bad play, I get upset. And when I see where the refs missed calling a penalty, I'm like, why didn't they call that, right? Or I can get emotional even though I know the end. The Bible tells us the end, right? All of our tears get wiped away. Every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. That's the end. We know that for certain. That's the hope of our calling. And because we know that, we're able to endure great trials and tribulation as we march toward that reality that is sure. In fact, that's what the second thing is, that we would know our inheritance, that we would know what's waiting for us. Whatever you think you need here on this earth... It's just nothing compared to the inheritance that's awaiting for you in heaven. right? When we get stuck with, with, with having material things and possessions and all kinds of different things, man, just when we get to heaven, one of the things I think we'll go through is just this experience. of, Well, that wasn't worth it, right? You ever had that experience? That wasn't worth it. Now, don't tell my sister this, but at, at her wedding, my dad said, I don't know that that was worth it. But he said it, right? Because why? You spend all that time. This is, this is help for Emma and, and Micah, right? You spend all that time preparing all that money, all that decorations. Their, their wedding was supposed to be outside, again, in Florida. April was supposed to be beautiful. It poured. I mean, absolutely poured. So everything was brought inside. Anyways, it was a fun day, but just at the end, my dad was going, I'm not sure that that was worth it, right? <laughs> why? Because, again, it, it goes by like that. It goes by like that. And I just use that as a moment to say, look, earthly things are supposed to feel like this because there's greater things to live for, right? And what does Jesus say about treasures? If you store them up in heaven, what, the, the moth won't destroy them. The thief won't steal them. How do you store up things and treasure? By investing in the kingdom of God. How do you invest in the kingdom of God? With your time, with your talents, with your treasures, right? You invest in people you show them the gospel you you say with Paul follow me as I follow Jesus right Paul doesn't say that as like some superhero he says that as a regular believer telling us to do the same thing and so know your glorious inheritance these these are the riches that enduring that begin in Jesus are fully applied to us by the spirit as we are filled with God's love God Paul wants us to know what our inheritance is in Christ. Because doubting God's love, when we doubt God's love, and when we doubt God's word, what it does is it leads, us, it leads us to anxiety, to discontentment, to jealousy. We covet. We have despair, and just we feel a void. All that stems from doubting God's love. Hear me very clearly. God says, you can give Him nothing. But He loves you. And He gives you His grace through Jesus. He lavishes it on you. The world says, what can you do for me? God says, you can't do anything for me. But I love you. And I'm going to give you every blessing that's in Jesus Christ when you believe. So, this past week, one of my favorite authors and just pastors who I've said under Tim Keller passed away. And as people were were just doing different memorials and different things, John Piper did just a quick video of what he thought. He he had just talked with Tim Keller a few weeks ago, and he's like, This is what I think Tim would want you to hear right now. And it's interesting, he went through Luke chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, you have the disciples going out and doing ministry. And they come back, and when they, when they come back, they say to Jesus, even, even the demons obeyed us as we cast them out. And this is what Jesus says back to them. He says in Luke 10, verse 20, he says, However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Do you rejoice for that? Do you rejoice at the fact that your name is written in heaven? And does that then drive how you approach your day, your week, your family, your job, your church, your community, your future? They could have been all excited. Jesus could have affirmed, yes, you're going you're gonna to cast out demons and you're going to build churches and you're going to do No, he says just rejoice that your name is written in heaven. You are valuable, and God loves you. And I know that for certain, because he says it in his word. So know your glorious inheritance. Lastly, know the power of the resurrection. Again, Paul is alluding to the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26, uh, Isaiah is basically denouncing the false prophets and and alluding to the fact that the, the, the God of the Bible is the true God who's created everything. And this is what he says. He says, look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name. This is what David says in Psalm 8, that he flicked them out with his fingers. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. That power that God used to create everything, everything from nothing, that power that God used to redeem Israel out of Egypt and to create a new people for himself, that is the same power that rose Jesus from the grave and that is inside every believer. And so Isaiah is speaking about this, and Paul uses this language to emphasize that the resurrection is this demonstration of the power of what new creation will look like. A mystery that has now been revealed. The new new creation has begun in the resurrection of Jesus, and Paul wants to strengthen our confidence in the plan of God that he will bring all things created new in the new heavens and the new earth. And when we have faith, what that does is it unites us to the resurrection of Jesus. And all the resurrection power that God used to raise him from the dead, is directed to us. Now, this should give us great hope. So why why then don't we naturally pray for these things? Why don't we pray for these things? When was the last time you prayed and said, hey, God, I just want to know you more. I'm going to open up your word. Will you just let me know you? When was the last time you prayed, God, I know you control the future, but just help me understand what what it truly means to be a believer and to be adopted into your kingdom. God, God, help me to see your power in my... Why don't we pray these things? It's really simple, because we're blinded by our own self-sufficiency. We're blinded by our own self-sufficiency. We think we do not need God because we view ourselves too high and God too low. He's our pocket God, right? We need Him, we pull Him out. We don't need them. We just put them away. But the Bible, when we submit to the Bible, what it does is it raises our view of who God is. He is the glorious Savior that we desperately need. So finally, Paul's just going to explain then what does what this resurrection power actually look like? So he looks, look at just finally verses 20 to 23. He says, Um, He exercised this power, this resurrection power in Christ Jesus by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of of the one who fills all things in every way. So just lastly, what I want us to see, I want us to see the local church as where Jesus reigns and resides. The local church is where Jesus reigns and where he resides. He's presently filling the earth through the local church. His resurrection and ascension into heaven is where he now reigns, and yet his kingdom continues to advance on this earth through the ministry of the local church where he resides. The resurrection proclaims that Jesus lives, and he lives forever. The ascension proclaims that Jesus reigns, and he does so forever. And nothing can stop those realities. So Christians, we tend to focus on what Jesus has done or what he will do, but this is what Jesus is doing now. He is reigning and residing among us now. And that's in fulfillment, again, of the Scriptures. David began to see, look, there will be a king who will be forever from my family. And he even begins to use the language of acknowledging this king in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 110.1, he says, this is the declaration of the Lord, my, to, to my Lord, right? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But it's not only in this age, but in the age to come. We don't have to wait. With the exaltation of Jesus, the age to come has been broken into the presence, and the two worlds now overlap And whereas, in David said in Psalm 8, verse 6, you made him ruler over the works of your hands, and you put everything under his feet. And he was referring just to man in general. Jesus is the true and better man. He's the true and better Adam. He's the true and better David, in which everything now has been submitted under his feet. He has put all things under his feet, and one day he will make all things new. In Jesus, the true image and the Son of God, the message Psalm 8 has been fulfilled. So the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus, the ascended Jesus, the Jesus who is reigning at the right hand of God, this is the Jesus who is the head of the church. He's the authority of the church. When people ask me, like, what, what is your view on, on church authority and, and, and the structure of the church, it begins really simple. Jesus is the head. He is the head of the church. And any church that decides they want to do things contrary to Jesus... Are showing that they don't believe who he really is. Right? When we when he uses that term, he is the head of the church. He is the head over all things for the church. And the church is God's plan to bring about the message of hope and salvation through the gospel. And again, nothing will stop it. The church is significant because it is the body of Christ. We have been united to Christ. We are his fullness. It is the headquarters of where Jesus rule and his presence is in the world, and by his spirit he is filling the world. One of my favorite verses, it's a verse that I have actually in my, in my office, is Habakkuk 2.14. Right, So I know the, the book of Habakkuk is probably not one that you've like, done a lot of research on and studied, it's probably in that clean part of the Bible, right? But in Habakkuk 2.14 he says this, he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God, or the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. In other words, you can't have a sea without water, right? Water completely covers the sea. If you don't have water, you don't have a sea. In other words, God's presence and his knowledge will fill the earth. It will happen. Do we believe that? Will we be a part of that? The ascension confirms Jesus' work, but it also continues the local church and Paul wants us to know these realities and so he prays for the Ephesians as he prays for us that we would know these realities and that we would walk in light of them. So we must not overlook this emphasis as we close. Growth in knowledge is indispensable to growth in holiness. Indeed, knowledge and holiness are even more intimately linked together than more than just a means to an end. Faith cannot grow without a firm basis of knowledge. And knowledge is sterile, or worthless, if it does not bring forth faith. So it's vital to see how Paul is bringing together to know and to believe, to understand, and to have faith in Jesus. So first we are to know the surpassing greatness demonstrated in Jesus, in his resurrection, and enthronement, and then we are to lay hold of that by walking in that by faith and walking in obedience. So, big idea, and we'll wrap up here. Big idea this morning is real simple. The more we know God, as he has revealed himself through the Bible, the more we will make God known. The more we know God, as he has revealed himself in the Bible, the more that we will make him known. Now again, as Paul is is literally praying for us this morning, as believers and attenders at West Wind Church. How can we not then just stop and pray ourselves? So let's just take a moment. Just bow your head again. I'm not going to ask anybody to pray out loud. Some of, some of us, that uh, would be fine. Would we would be okay with that. Some of us, that brings great anxiety. I understand that. We just want to have a time though where we commune with the God of the Bible who has just so richly, Paul has just made clear that he wants us to know him. And that he wants us to know exactly what it means to be a believer. And that the more we know him, the more we will make him known. Just spend a few times there at your seats, just confessing to God. Whatever it needs, you need to confess. Maybe this is a time just to reconnect with the Lord. Maybe it's been a busy week, you haven't really connected with the Lord. This is the time. Maybe you just, you're ready for that next step. You, you're ready to take a step of faith and to grow in your knowledge of him. Maybe, maybe there's some things blocking that, that you need to confess and ask God to help remove. Whatever it is, let's spend some time. Yes, Father, this is what eternal life is. It's knowing you. and Lord, the greater that we come to know you as just the sovereign king who you are, the power that you have displayed in creation and redemption and resurrection. Lord, help us to walk in that power. Lord, we have... So many people, just in the immediate proximity of our congregation, where here we are meeting to exalt you, to know you, to, to submit to your word or to, to, to understand how greatly you love us, and there are so many outs in our neighborhoods and in the city and in this town, God who don't, who don't know you. and the means that you've given. For the gospel to advance is the local church. So, God, as we come to know you, be pleased, God, to use us as vessels to make your glory known to those around us. And be pleased to be the saving God that you are. Lord, we are your body. You are God, grant us healing where we need healing. Allow us to be people of forgiveness and grace. Lord, help us to encourage and defend and to flame the grace that we see in others. God, and I thank you for so much grace that I have already seen. People willing to share their time ministering to others. People willing to, to just spend hours upon hours praying For others, serving one another. I just want to say thank you, God, for the ways that you're working in and through us, and that you would fan into flame even more your kingdom and your ministry and the gospel presence here in Waukee and the greater Des Moines area. God, you are our living hope, and we we praise you for it.